Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast today, we're going to be discussing the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine with Sir Pascal Sorio, the Chief Executive Officer of AstraZeneca. Pascal, welcome to this podcast. Hi, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. It really is a pleasure to be here today. Pascal, AstraZeneca is a huge pharmaceutical company and with reach across the whole world. And I've seen reports this year that it's one of the fastest growing pharmaceutical companies. How do you manage to keep an eye on all of that enormous global operation as a CEO? Well, first of all, I have a great team. You know, the company is indeed growing rapidly. We are probably the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing companies in the industry. But I have a great team and that that success has been built by them and together with me. And the second thing is that I travel a lot and I travel the world and I meet the teams around the the various geographies. And I I think you told me you're in China at the moment, but obviously it's a British-Swedish company. So I guess you spend quite a bit of time here in Europe as well. I spend a fair amount of time in Sweden, as you said, Andy, because we have a large manufacturing site there, south of uh, Stockholm, in a large R&D site in uh, Gothenburg. I also spend time in the UK, of course, and I also spend a lot of time in the US. We have an R&D base near Washington and another one in, in Boston and our commercial head offices in Wilmington, Delaware. So as you can see, many places to go to. And it, is that part of your style of leadership is actually being there um, with all of the, uh, I guess, mostly the senior staff in these places, but to make sure that you're there a presence in, in these many different sites around the world, but with both R&D and manufacturing and, and so on? Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I I don't really have an office anywhere. I have a workstation everywhere. And so I like this because I take a seat in a workstation and I meet people, not only the senior leadership, but the people who are working in the labs or on marketing plans, clinical plans, whatever they're doing. And I hear people, I, they stop and they stop at my desk and they, we chat and I actually learn so much faster doing this, listening to people in the corridors, etc., than sort of being in uh, formal meetings. So being in the sites and talking to people is fundamental and you stay in touch with the organization. You hear what people are working on, what worries them, and you get a sense for, you know, whether the organization is in a good place or not. And during the pandemic, we talked many times, and I think there's no doubt in my mind, you were very much in the weeds of wanting to know what was happening and giving your thoughts and advice as, as we went along. But that must be very difficult in peacetime when you've got such a huge portfolio on, on development and the obviously the distribution and use of the drugs that AstraZeneca makes. How do you stay in touch with what's happening or, or, or do you find you spend most of your time in more administrative roles rather than in the weeds of the science? No, no, I spend most of my time in the, you know, talking to our scientists, uh, reviewing our projects, our, our portfolio, our science, but also reviewing our commercial plans around the world, visiting factories. During COVID, of course, it was different because, as you said, uh, we were all 24-7 on the deck. And it was the same for you and your team. Of course, everybody was working, you know, harder than ever, quite frankly. And and I, for us as a company, it was one of the things that they, our shareholders were worried at the beginning when we announced this partnership. They were worried it would distract the management team, but it didn't actually. And the way the company is organized, people work together and we're organized by units that can continue working on their own. 
So of course, I stayed in touch with the organization, but I think it really showed that how great a team we have because the company didn't slow down or, you know, didn't lose any momentum. But suddenly a lot of my time was going into this vaccine, which was a momentous effort. And people don't realize this. Of course, you know, it's sort of easy to criticize because an effort of that magnitude is never 100% perfect. We still delivered 3 billion doses of vaccine together, right? And it's dependently assessed that it saved 6.5 million lives globally. But but it was definitely a tremendous effort. So let's we'll we'll come back to that and those experiences in a moment. But I'd I'd like to take you back to your childhood in France. And I, I think you grew up in Paris, is that right? I, I grew up north of Paris. I grew up in a... <laughs> In a uh, in an area that was not the easiest one to live in, a sort of a you know a high rise kind of suburb, low housing, low cost housing kind of a suburb where everybody was fighting in the street, and uh, so that's where I grew up. I have very good memories of my youth, I must say, because you know I had brothers. We were a very very strong family, and I had many friends. But it was not always easy, for sure. And I I, I read that um, your brothers are all doctors, but you decided to go and become a vet. Is that because it's harder to get into vet school and you wanted to be better than them? Or was it just to do something different? <laughs> no, because I was the oldest, actually. So I no, I think what very simply, I love horses. And I loved horses when I was five. And my parents didn't have any money for me to go horse riding. So I never... I never was able to horse ride until I was 15, 16, and I made some pocket money to pay for horse riding lessons. But I loved horses, and I wanted to be a vet, and, and animals in general, I wanted to be a vet. I was very good in math and physics, and in those days, in France, basically people were going to engineering school. So I was very tempted to do this because I loved math and physics, but I also loved biology and, and animals in general and horses in particular. So I went to vet school. I finished high school, I was young, I was only 16. And so I knew, I thought I knew was, uh, what I was going to do, but you know, in fact, I didn't. So a few years later, I worked as a vet. I had to because my father died and I was the older, oldest in the family. But I decided I wanted to go explore the world and do something else, so I joined the industry. How long were you practicing as a vet in France? I did it. Uh, I did it for three years. I was. I worked in a horse uh, practice. I was specialized specializing in horses. From what I've read, most of your career after that was actually in big pharma and focusing on human health. As you left the animals behind. Yes, I did actually. I did a business. I did an MBA at HEC, which is you know business school in France. And I joined the industry and I joined the industry in finance and simply because I wanted to make sure I showed people I could do something else than, you know, being sent to a agricultural or vet department. And I did it, did this for a very short while. And then they sent me to New Zealand. I worked in New Zealand for a year and a half. We lived there in Auckland with my wife and my two young, our two young kids at the time. And then we transferred, we were transferred to Sydney, Australia, which became our second home. And then I, I guess you cut your teeth over quite a number of years in industry and in the sort of usual pattern moving between different companies and working in different countries. And then in 2012, you were appointed to AstraZeneca. How did that come about? Had you always thought you would go for a major role in a large pharmaceutical company or, or was that not, not part of the plan? You know, I think really my goal always has been to take a job that I knew I was going to enjoy and where I could make a contribution. So I've worked in Japan, I've worked in New Zealand, Australia, I've worked in 
New Jersey and the US have worked in California and the US and also worked in Switzerland at Roche. And I had a great job at Roche. I was never going to be the CEO because the CEO was younger than me at the time. And we had good relationship, but I could have stayed at Roche and I was approached to see whether I would join AstraZeneca. And AZ, you know, life is a little bit strange sometimes. I mean, AZ was a company that I admired a lot when I started my career and I was in Australia. And there were two companies I admired. One was Roche, the other one was AstraZeneca. I'm lucky enough, I worked for both of those. But when I was approached to join AstraZeneca, I thought, well, you know, it's a company that I admired a lot. They seem to going to be going through a difficult patch and uh, jumped in. Some of my colleagues at Roche at the time called me suicidal because they said, you know, it's going to be tough. And it was actually tough, but it was also a great pleasure working with so many great people. And so if you look over the more than 10 years now, you've been at AstraZeneca. And, and as, as we talked about at the beginning, this very rapid growth that there is at the moment. It, is that because of the ideas business-wise around looking for, for what is out there in biotechs and in smaller companies and acquiring those? Or is it a lot of what's driven internally in the R&D departments in AstraZeneca? It's, it's actually both, actually, Andy. I mean, our value start with we follow the science, and the second one we, and is we do what is right for patients. At the end of the day, I always tell people, you know, what we need is we need medicines that will make a difference to patients and the way medicines are conducted. So the patients and the doctors, they don't, really, don't care where the, these drugs come from. They just want good drugs. And so whether they come from us or someone else, it doesn't matter. But of course, as a company, when we license in a product or a technology coming from the outside, we have to show we can add value because otherwise, you know, it's pointless really. So it's actually our pipeline. Initially, we rebuilt it with mostly with licenses, business development. But in the last few years, we've really built our own pipeline very rapidly. So we rely on as best the science as we can. But as you know, as well or better than I do, science is a big ocean worldwide, right? And the key for big companies to never, you know, be too inward focused. And we constantly look outside and reprioritize. And if we find something externally that is better than what we have come up with ourselves, we reprioritize and, and, and uh, develop the external product. So there's a mix. And today I would say it's probably 60 70% of our pipeline is internally driven and 30, 40% is external. And so with that growth, have you you've focused a lot on oncology products in that 10-year period. Was that a choice or is that just where most of the science was going? Actually, we chose to focus on a few therapy areas at the time back in 2013 when I started because we can't be everywhere and I really wanted to build excellence in a few areas where we could really understand the science, but also how to develop products. You know, there are many companies that have invented products, but badly developed them. So you need to be good at every step of the way. So we focused on oncology, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, and more recently, rare disease. And that was our, our focus initially, and we've been very successful in oncology. 
in part because the science has exploded in cancer. And today, many, many modalities, many technologies that lead to many products, many solutions. But it's happening today in cardiovascular disease as well. It's happening in respiratory disease and immunology. And so then you're steering this very large organization in 2019. And, and I don't know when you first were aware that the pandemic was going to be upon us, probably sometime in early 2020. But what did you feel when you realized that this sort of wave of the pandemic was coming and that the, the response to it was going to be pretty devastating for both populations, but also from a business perspective in being able to run the company? Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite interesting, you know, because we are the largest pharmaceutical company in China, and that means we have a large number of employees. We have close to eighteen thousand employees in China, and so I saw very quickly, very early on, the uh, the impact of COVID. I was on video with our team on a weekly basis to see how they were doing, and this developed so rapidly, and, and it was so bad that I realized it's likely to become a big problem globally. And then, of course, from there, it started spreading to Italy, etc. So very early on in January, actually, of 2020, we realized there was something going on. And initially, we started very modestly. We thought, what can we do to help? So I remember we were buying masks in China and then bringing them to hospitals uh, around the world. We were sort of trying to contribute. If you remember, there was no mask nowhere. Right? And it's a bit funny today that there was no mask, but there was not any mask. Then we looked at our pipeline thinking, okay, what can we do with our pipeline? Can we repurpose some of our medicines to help the treatment of COVID? Then we looked at antibodies. We have lots of expertise in antibody engineering. Many of these people are best in Cambridge, but we also have others in, uh, in the U.S. And we got working on, on our uh, long-acting antibody to treat uh, COVID, but also to protect the people who are immunocompromised. I think it's important to remember vaccines are great, but they don't really work very well in people who are very immunocompromised, like people with cancer or trans who have been transplanted. And finally, in the course of thinking about what, can, what else can we do, we just came across you guys at Oxford, and we talked with John Bell, and uh, we, you know, rapidly uh, agreed that together we could do something that would have an impact. but. You know, it was suddenly a big undertaking, but I think we started talking in April of 2020 and by May we were already working together. But you, Andy, had already started working back in January, of course, and you were already quite advanced with the clinical development. So when you were thinking about making a partnership with Oxford, and you, you'll remember at the time the media was saying, well, why partner with AstraZeneca? They don't know anything about vaccines. I think that's uh, no, it is a fair comment. I mean, you obviously you had acquired a company in the UK which was making influenza vaccines, but actually that wasn't a part of the core business of, of AstraZeneca. So how did you both internally in the company, and I guess also with with your investors persuade people that this was a good idea to move into this space yeah it's a really good question i mean first of all when people say that i think they should look at the facts and you know the three vaccines that have had the most impact in the world on covid were made by us uh, moderna smaller volume uh, globally important in the us in europe but initially limited in, in impact because their capacity, their volume was limited. And Pfizer, so Moderna was not a vaccine company. We were not a vaccine company. Pfizer was a vaccine company. 
but there are many others, other vaccine companies in the world, and they were nowhere, right? Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I think that's right. The so the Sanofi and GSK and Merck, all very large vaccine companies in, in Europe and the US, who were working on vaccines but didn't bring any to market early. Yeah, and that's you know, I think everybody tried, I guess, but uh, it was not it was not always easy to develop those vaccines quickly and then to build the capacity. I think what actually. It's almost it was almost helpful to not be in vaccine because to be under it was a big undertaking. Some people at the time were saying, "Oh, you know, it will be like the 2009, not even a pandemic, epidemic. Let's call it. It will come and go rapidly. So there's probably no point doing it." We didn't think like this, and because we we are not necessarily in, in vaccines. We actually decided to scale up and build a network of uh, factories around the world, and have every region, you know, supplied with by their own network of plants. So I think, in a way, it sort of helped us. We're not totally outside of vaccine. We have a flu vaccine for for children, which is used a lot in the UK in particular. But we are very, we have a very modest presence in vaccine. But I don't think in the end it really created an issue. In fact, you know, first of all, a lot of the expertise was with you at Oxford, and secondly, it enabled us to just say, okay, well, let's let's do that now. Internally, you asked me the question. Internally, I never had anybody internally who told me, you know, it's too hard. It's 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 risky. We're not going to make any profit. What are, why are we doing this? Everybody actually jumped in and uh, said, well, let's do this. And again, it was not perfect. We had supply issues in Europe, but the rest of the world worked very well. The UK worked very well. Um, so it was not perfect, but I think we delivered, again, 3 billion doses. And this vaccine saved the largest number of lives globally, even more than the Pfizer vaccine at the time in the first period of time of about 12, 15 months. And you mentioned the deal with Oxford University, which was that the vaccine should be developed not for profit or low cost. And that arrangement is a bit different from how one would normally get involved in development of any new product and clearly wasn't the approach taken by the other major developers. How did that go down, particularly when you in the commercial world that you have to exist in as part of your job as CEO? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, internally, as I said, I mean, basically our people took great pride in doing this and they knew it was for no profit, but nobody hesitated and it created an enormous amount of pride, as you can imagine. The board was very supportive from day one and I was not sure our shareholders would be supportive, but I realized very quickly they were actually. And the reason is very simple. First of all, there are people like you and I, <laughs> They want to. Uh, they wanted this this issue to be dealt with. They wanted this pandemic to go away. And secondly, but it's important to keep in mind: if you are a large investor, like if you are a pension fund, and you are a large investor, you're going to be an investor for the next 30, 40, 50 years, and that means you want the economy to be robust. And if you have a pandemic that kills people, ultimately it will affect the economy. And if you are an investor, the economy, you know, if the economy is affecting the value of your investments diminishes. I think there was an interest also for investors to see the, you know, people protected and the economy protected so their investment could be protected. But the main thing is, I I think they're simply, you know, normal people like you and I, and they wanted this pandemic to be addressed. And and I suppose when you were thinking about the decision of partnering with Oxford, you also discussed that with your family. And you told me a story about uh, talking with your children about this, and they gave you some advice. 
Yeah, they did. And they really did. They really told me that I had to do this. They've, two things they've reacted the same way to. One is climate change and two is this vaccine. And my kids told me, you got to do this, you know, otherwise, you know, how do you... How do you how do you face up to us and 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 your grandson in particular? So there are times in life when you need to step up and contribute and do the right thing. So very importantly, helping set good sensible policy at the top of AstraZeneca. That's very good to know. So I I think the other thing which was very striking at that time was your head of vaccines at the time on the clinical side, Tonya Villafana, said to me that she was that really the a key part of the early bit of the partnership was to work very closely with us, but not to interfere because of the risk of changing the approaches to development that could then have slowed things down. And I think that was a brilliant decision, you know, particularly knowing the difficulties that, that you'll be aware of when you're working in Big Pharma of managing the the process of clinical development is very complex. And I think that's probably one of the key things that got us even in 2020 to having a product at the end is that we didn't then hand everything over and stop what we were doing. We just carried on going. And I, I think that was a brilliant decision to do that. And then absolutely key, as you said, was that global distribution of manufacturing, which is a really heavy lift. I, I think people won't really understand how difficult that is normally manufacturing happens on one or two sites around the world but but this was more than 20 sites that had to be set up to make the same product at the same quality and I, I can't imagine how your team actually achieved that during 2020 so things were ready to go in in early 21. Yeah, Antonia has really been a key leader in our organization in that vaccines pro vaccine project. But her whole experience has been in this space of protecting people, either with vaccine or, or alternatively with antibody. In terms of manufacturing, we partnered with 25 organizations and companies, what we call in our industry, uh, CMOs, contract manufacturing organizations. So we have a network, we had a network, so we had a dedicated supply network for the US, one for Latin America, one for Europe, one for the UK. We had one for India, we had one for Japan, we had one for South Asia. So every region had their own supply sources and it worked very well everywhere. Actually, the place where we had challenges was Europe, where unfortunately the partners we had had a productivity a yield that was lower than we expected and we fell short of the supply we were expecting but everywhere else in the world it worked uh, very well and so through through 2020 the uh, the work on the trials was ongoing and also AstraZeneca had set up trials in the US and in Russia and in Japan which were moving along and then we had a rare side effect in the UK which probably wasn't a side effect, it was just an incidental event. But when in a trial, when these events happen, we follow our regulatory rules, which is you pause, you, you have independent advice on whether there's anything to be concerned about. And the advice here in the UK was to, within a week, to get on with the trials and there was nothing, no signal to be concerned about. But that had a very big impact in the US and perhaps set the scene for then ongoing difficulties in the US on clinical development and then eventually the vaccine not being licensed there, despite it being approved in over 180 other countries. So what, what's your take on what happened in, in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it was not a normal development program. When you develop a drug or a vaccine, you do it without the media and the entire world looking at looking at you every day. Um, we were under the microscope and it just happened that we were leading the pack together with Moderna and Pfizer. And so we were very, very, very advanced and therefore everybody was looking at us. But I think this, this event, this stopping, which 
you know, happens, as you said, in many trials, basically attracted attention. It created an environment, especially in the media, that really was very unhelpful and attracted more and more attention over time. And it's a pity because we were simply in the lead. And, you know, if you're in the lead, of course, everybody looks at you. And that event created all sorts of negative comments and affected, I think, affected the, the vaccine and the perception. It's a great vaccine, but just like any drugs, any drug or any vaccine, there is no there is no product without some issues. But, you know, this one was definitely affected suddenly more in the Western world than elsewhere in the world. I have to say in the rest of the world, people didn't listen so much to the Western media and we didn't have that issue too much. Yes, and I, I think particularly in the US, it was a very complicated political environment as well with, you know, during the, the first Trump administration that also perhaps fed into the, the also the difficulties in the, the media perception of, yeah. of what was going on. But, you know, I think people forget, I mean, in Europe, or in the US, we tend to forget that if you take the US and you add Europe together, you have less than a billion people. There are 9 billion, almost 9 billion people on this planet. So you've got another seven and a half, eight billion living somewhere else in the world. And so when you roll out a vaccine, you roll a vaccine for the world, not only for the first billion, if you want. And so a lot of these people in, you know, South America and Brazil, in, uh, in India, in South Asia, etc., they were just focused on Getting access to a vaccine that could help protect the population was easy to use because we also forget, I mean, this vaccine was easy to use. In, in, in India, you had people going around vaccinating people, riding motorcycles for fields. Uh, so you had to have a vaccine that didn't have to be uh, kept in a fridge at, or very, very low, not even a fridge, very low temperature for the early, the early vaccine, uh, the early mRNA vaccines. So around the world, and the fact that it was cheap also, I mean, no profit, then that vaccine was very well received. I tell you, I mean, I go to many countries, many emerging markets, and the government is always thankful because number one, we saved a lot of people. Number two, they didn't have to spend a fortune buying vaccines. And they tell me the, the money we saved, we reinvested in our economy, relaunching the economy after COVID. Yes, and we were talking about this earlier, that actually everywhere we go, uh, there is this incredible sense that the vaccine has had a huge impact on people's lives. And, and including here in the UK, when you know when I give a, uh, a talk, a large proportion of the audience had the vaccine that we developed together. And it's a very positive response um, always, but as you say, and particularly around the world as well. Of course, then the vaccine was finally launched here in the UK at the end of December. Um, 2020. And within a, about a month of that, it was licensed through the European Medicines Agency, at least as a, an emergency use authorization. But then finally in February, through WHO pre-qualification, which allowed it to be distributed throughout the world. And through the COVAX facility, which was the facility that supplied vaccine to low-middle-income countries, in the first half of 2021, 90% of the doses were coming from AstraZeneca and Serum Institute of India supply of the vaccine, which is pretty remarkable, given that clearly you have to vaccinate people early in a pandemic if you want to save lives. And I'm sure that's what's made the difference in those figures you quoted earlier of it's saving more lives than other vaccines, according to the analysis that's been done. Absolutely. And the fact that many of these countries basically for a long, long time didn't have access to any other vaccine but this one. Because the mRNA vaccines were kept, well, they were not kept, but they were essentially used in the US and then subsequently in Europe. And they were also more expensive. And so there was
was little left for the rest of the world. So I think you could look at it and say the industry as a whole did a good job. There was no plan, no plan like this. It just happened. The mRNA vaccines were in the initial phase, at least used mostly in the US and Europe and, and expanded over time. And our vaccine was used mostly in the rest of the world and in part in Europe. But together, even though it was not a plan, as I said, it just happened like this. Together, we actually covered the whole world very well. We should also remember the Chinese vaccines also helped quite a number of countries. So that really worked very well. We, we supplied mostly the emerging countries and partly Europe and the UK, of course, we were really the major supplier in the UK. And so for the emerging markets, we were mostly supplying COVAX. We had an issue because, you know, we were relying in part on, on our partner SSI, SSI in, the, uh, in uh, India to export some of the vaccines that they manufactured, but the pandemic totally exploded in India. So the vaccine had to be kept in India because, you know, the number of cases totally exploded. So there was not no possibility to export anything. So we had to rely on all the supply chains we had around the world, created tensions sometimes in terms of supply. But as I said, apart from Europe, we had really good supply there everywhere. And you, you mentioned Serum Institute of India, who one of the partners who was making the, the AstraZeneca vaccine during the whole of the pandemic. And they did an extraordinary job, didn't they? I mean, with the, the most huge manufacturing capabilities and capacity for that supply. But as you said, because of that outbreak in India, a lot of that was diverted to the Indian market for quite a prolonged period. Yeah, SII, Serum Institute of India, really is the largest manufacturer of vaccines in the world. But in Europe, we don't hear much about them because they mostly supply COVAX and the low middle income countries, but they are in volume the largest manufacturer in the world and they did an absolutely stellar job. I mean, they really had good yield, the yield being how many, how many doses of vaccine you get out of, a, out of a liter of vaccine you manufacture. They had very, very, very good yield and they produced, you know, an enormous quantity of doses. Fortunately for India, there was enough to supply India, but unfortunately we could not rely on some of their manufacturing, some of their production for the rest of the world. You mentioned some of the difficulties in Europe, from particularly from a manufacturing point of view, but there were also other difficulties that we saw early in 2021. One was from Germany, someone quoting that the vaccine only had 8% efficacy, which was an astonishing comment. And then we had President Macron saying that the vaccine was quasi-ineffective whatever that means. And I, I, I wondered how, for you, working in an organisation that, that obviously is very familiar with dealing with the media, how that felt when suddenly you have these comments which get carried all over the world and they're very difficult to counter with any media strategy. How, how did that feel as CEO of AstraZeneca? Yeah, it was, you know, it was uh, sometimes challenging for sure, because, you know, the, as, as you know, the media were very active and stories were popping up left and right constantly. And what happened in this instance, and as you know very well, because you were working on the vaccines development, vaccine when the study was initially in adults, but kind of what you could call younger adults, and the study addressing older adults came later. So in the initial phase, we had data in, young, in younger adults, and people were trying to read the tea leaves of the, the efficacy of the vaccine in older patients, but there, there was very little data. And so when the data came out, it showed the vaccine is actually very effective in older people. But, you know, everybody at the time was trying to read the tea leaves and, and comment, etc. So that was suddenly very difficult. But, you know, I've learned 
through my whole career that at the end of the day, when you are going through a storm like this, you just, you know, put your head down and you keep doing your job and you try to do it the best you can. And of course, we had to manage the, the media and the communication, but our energy was mostly focused on delivering this vaccine, manufacturing it, delivering it, making sure that it could help, it could protect people as quickly as possible. If you think about it, uh, today, hopefully people recognize the vaccine works very well, including in older people, which was the, the debate at the time, and it has had a big impact. But at the time, working through all these ups and downs and these stories, I must say sometimes it was a bit demotivating, I have to say, for our team, because they were really doing their very best, working 24-7, and uh, some of them were really exhausted. We even had a couple of people uh, exper experiencing burnouts at the end of this because they really worked so hard for several months. Absolutely, and uh, I, I think that's been a, a fairly universal experience, not, not only for people working on the vaccine, but in many, many sectors where people were in the front line. I was just going to say that the later data on the older adults from the, the studies was not actually envisaged at the beginning. The plan was to run younger and older adults at the same time. But the Independent Safety Committee advised us to generate data in younger adults before we added the older adult group on. And so we had to delay the recruitment, which, as you say, meant that when we finally had the interim results, we had a much smaller data set on older adults at that point, which then led to all of this difficulty with the interpretation of the data. And again here, I mean, in the normal sort of development program, the regulator, the MHRA in the UK or EMA in Europe or FDA in the US, would wait for the data and look at the data when they're produced. But here we were constantly operating under the, micro, under the microscope of the media and everybody became an expert. I mean, the politicians were experts in science and knew everything about vaccines. And some scientists became communications political experts. So everybody was an expert in the whole story and expressing opinions. You know, it, it was really a, a difficult time for everybody, for sure. I guess as we then move through 2021, um, the, the next challenge was the very rare side effects of what's called the ITT or TTS thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome, which is this syndrome which occurs incredibly rarely, but involves individuals developing both a bleeding tendency and, and clots, which can be devastating. And certainly you and I discussed these at the time, and it, it was, I think, fairly traumatic, not only for those affected in their families, but for those of us involved in vaccine development. But it's, I think it's important to consider that alongside the huge and devastating impact of COVID, in an unvaccinated population where the, the risks from the disease were so much greater. And it's very difficult when you look at the, the media management of that to balance those two, where clearly there was huge benefits of vaccination still, even in the face of a rare side effect. Yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, again, because we're in the lead, we attracted a lot of attention and we were unfortunate with these side effects that emerged. And in fact, initially, it was not well understood, but actually, you know, you can diagnose it relatively easily very early on and then treat it very rare and totally treatable. For this vaccine and the other vaccine, you look at the overall risk benefit equation and the risk is extremely rare and the benefit is massive for the population. And that's how you look at vaccines. Absolutely. So I, I guess that partnership with Oxford University has been incredibly successful for AstraZeneca and for Oxford. And that impact around the world is is something which um, I hope when historians are looking back, we'll, we'll see just how important it was for that decision that you made back in May of 2020 to 
to make that partnership, even though to some on the outside it didn't seem to make any sense. But it, I think uh, let's hope that it did make a lot of sense when, when people look back. And certainly at this moment in history, it, it feels like it's had enormous impact. I think it did make a lot of sense. And I think we together had a really great impact. And I see it as a good example of successful private-public partnership. I mean, public-private partnerships are not always easy and different people will have different views. And of course, like in any partnership, you don't always agree. But overall, it was a very, very successful partnership. I think we worked very well together and delivered something that was very meaningful. And I can tell you, for our company, apart from, you know, feeling we did the right thing and, and helped uh, people, which is our mission as a pharmaceutical company. It also created an enormous sense of pride and a great commitment by our employees. Even today, I was in Japan two weeks ago and people were talking about it, you know, and, and this week I was in China and some of our people from India, the team from India came because we had a, a regional meeting in Shanghai and they were talking about it. So it's really created an enormous sense of pride. So I certainly uh, will never regret engaging in this project. And I, I think the, the same feeling here from Oxford. And of course, w without a partner like AstraZeneca, even though we could do the clinical development, we, we could never have done the licensing process in over 180 countries or, or the manufacturing. I think that manufacturing and distribution is something which you, you have to be in big pharma to do that. And I, I think people often don't realize that when they think that maybe independent organizations like universities should be able to do this on their own. I just cannot see that's possible. Yeah. And that's really where I think our partnership was very successful. We each brought different skills or experiences and together we, we did it, right? The other piece, by the way, that shouldn't be forgotten is also the access to governments and talking to them because in the early phase, not every government was convinced they needed to order vaccine. Some governments thought, well, let's wait, because people think when they need it, they just go to the department store and they pick it up from the store, from the shelf. Vaccines manufacturing is complicated. You have to order it, right? And so going around the world, talking to government, alerting them of, of this threat and showing them the timelines about manufacturing also helped making sure they placed order so they could get the vaccine when they needed it. So, Pascal, if you'd finished veterinary school, what might you have done differently if you hadn't gone into the farmer industry? What what, what could a, a Pascal Serio life have been like if it wasn't this one? I think I probably would be a, a horse vet. I mean, I love, I love horses and I had a good practice. I, mean, I was working a good practice and so I could do this or I could have a farm. I, I love animals, I love farming. So that's probably what I would do and half of me is still there, you know. So <laughs> I've never regretted, uh, never regretted. Of course, I enjoy very much what I do and I've worked and uh, I worked with so many people that are both smart and very nice to work with and I've experienced so much diversity in the world that it really has been an amazing, very rewarding experience. But that's what probably I would have done and I would have enjoyed also. So do you have time in your spare time to ride horses or to have any contact with animals at all these days? Yes, I do. I don't I don't ride horses a lot, but I still do. And one day maybe when I retire, I'll do that in Australia. What, what do you do in your spare time? Or maybe there isn't any spare time for a CEO. No, 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 I, I, I do. If I, I, I try to horse ride, but I also cycle a lot. That's mostly what I do during the weekend. And, you know, during the week, I do like everybody else. I try to run or go to the gym, but 
Every weekend I go cycling because I love cycling. I love cycling in the mountains in particular. And I, I have bikes in different in different places around the world so that I can go I can go and, and use these bikes uh, everywhere I, I am. Fantastic. Well, may, maybe next time you're in the UK, we'll go and cycle up a mountain somewhere here. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. It's been wonderful to hear the story from your side of the partnership between Oxford and AstraZeneca. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy, and thank you for such a great partnership. I think really we should be proud of the work we did together. And you at Oxford, of course, had a, you know, the insight to get started very early on to get working on this vaccine. So I'm, I'm sure you're very proud and we're very proud, like we are very proud of what we've achieved together. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 